Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. Hey, what is up, Tanya Mack? Uh, lots of things are always up. You doing well? I am. I'm really excited to get into today's topic because I'm interested in learning all the how it got started and how this group is fostering the expansion and adoption of telemedicine across the country. And even now, from what I understand, beyond the borders. Absolutely. And timing couldn't be better because um, we are catching this group right before they have their Georgia statewide conference, which is kind of the leading telehealth conference in the state, which will be later this week in Jekyll Island. So awesome. Should be great. So let me introduce our guests and our topic today. We're going to be talking about telehealth, telemedicine, and some trends that are happening in telemedicine. And our guest today is Rena Brewer, the CEO of the Georgia and Global Partnership for Telehealth. So why it's a timely topic, in January of this year, Forbes magazine ran an article that asked the question, Will 2017 be the year of telemedicine? And some of their findings included that a big gap existed because when they polled patients, about 74% of patients said they absolutely would participate in a telehealth encounter. Mm -hmm. Yet only about 17% of providers actually had the skill set to do that that encounter. So we have a big disparity. Yes, we have a big disparity. So um, of course, me being in telehealth, and that's a passion of mine, and certainly of Rena, our guest today, we're trying to close that gap. And as we see on TV and lots of other things, telehealth is really kind of bubbling to the forefront. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest and the, the company that they represent. So we have as our guest today, Rena Brewer. Hello, Rena. Hello, glad to be here. Yep, and Rena is CEO of the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth, which is also, as CW mentioned, extended their reach to the Global Partnership for Telehealth. Rena is a nurse, and she is a national leader in telemedicine. We cross paths many, many times throughout the year. She's been with GPT for over 10 years, and before she was with the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth, she ran the Southeastern Telehealth Resource Center. And I know she's also been involved, which we'll hear a little bit about, the Allied School for Telemedicine Training. And I'm excited to have GPT here today. They've been a partner of mine for years and years. I'm happy to dive a little deeper today. Um, They really kind of pioneered telemedicine in Georgia from the year 2014. At the time, I remember they were one of the top four or five states in the country to be leaders in developing the telemedicine industry. And they've grown and grown. And now they have over 600 partners. They are in uh, over 10 states. And we'll hear a little bit about their global reach. They're in four countries or more. So welcome, Rena. Oh, so glad to be here and so glad to be talking about my favorite subject. Me too. So we're going to (laughs) be, we're going to be like two hens in the hen house here, just having a grand old time. But why don't we start with you talking about how telemedicine got started with your organization in Georgia and your today's mission. Sure, sure. Back in 2004, uh, the then commissioner of the insurance, uh, commissioner of insurance, 
John Oxendine. Um, he he was working with Blue Cross Blue Shield of um, of Georgia. They were wanting to have a merger with Anthem out of California. So he negotiated that they would provide a three year grant and several million dollars to start a statewide network. So he certainly had a lot of insight and in wanting Georgia to become a leader. So I was hired during that three-year period of the grant, and the deliverable was that we would have at least 40 sites, and a site would be a provider or a receiver of telehealth services. So typically back then, it was a rural hospital, and then we connected with uh, specialists at large centers of urban centers in Atlanta. Um, so after the three-year period, mission accomplished. We had those 40 sites up and running. We started clinical services. We had um, eight clinical encounters in 2006, and the program was launched. There was some funding left. So at the end of the three years, we were able to transition into the now Georgia Partnership for Telehealth, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. And once we became that nonprofit, it's like the floodgates opened. Um, you mentioned we have over 600 partners compared to the 40 that we had back in 2004. Um, our focus still is Georgia, but because we were doing so well in Georgia, other states started calling, other providers. Um, so we ended up going into Alabama, and we started a 501c3 there. The Alabama partnership bled down into Florida. So we have work going on in Florida. And then lo and behold, uh, we started spreading in other states. And you might hear the term global partnership for telehealth. So we ended up forming an umbrella organization um, that will cover us in all states that we are in. And we're in 10 states. And then even into those countries that we service as well. Um, so it's been a fast uh, growth over the last 10 years. And as you had stated, we are we are known around the country uh, because we're one of the few statewide telehealth networks. In a lot of states, you have silos of telehealth going on. Uh, so it's rare to find one large organization that everyone in the state can connect through. Yeah, and I think that was your foresight and your organization's way back then to really get stakeholders to the table and have partnerships that were collaborative instead of competitive. I think that was a real yeah. key. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yes. just to kind of put it in scope, Rena, so that first year you had six telehealth encounters, and about how many are you doing per year now? Well, we're we're total, what we've added up is the total, and we're over 400,000 now. Yeah, clinical so encounters. Quite, yeah, quite, probably one of the largest in the country would be, outside of the military, maybe, been wow. one of my guesses. Right. You know, they're big or, the, or the VA. The VA's doing a lot, yeah. too. Yeah. So let's talk quickly about, um, I know that telemedicine demand is really increasing rapidly because of a lot of reasons, but let's talk about what services GPT provides and kind of how you do things. Okay. Um, behavioral health, of course, is is at the top of the list, uh, as you would find in most every state, because there's such a shortage of behavioral health providers and psychiatrists. So what better way uh, than to spread those limited resources than to do it virtually? Um, but then we have many pediatric uh, specialties. Uh, we're fortunate to have Children's Health Care of Atlanta as one of our partners. So they push out uh, a good many telehealth services across the state. Uh, to those underserved areas. Uh, and then, of course, we're proud to have you guys in, in maternal fetal medicine. We have 
oncology. We have genetic counseling for OBGYN, a gastroenterology, cardiology, neurology, and different flavors of that. We have pediatric neurology. Of course, we have telestroke that's going on. Um, we have urgent care. That's rather new over the, the last uh, couple of years. Um, we have pediatric care. We have primary care going on. Most anything that, that you can that you need a follow-up visit for, a consultation for, or even just basic um, non-urgent acute care, you can do it by telemedicine. Right. It's really kind of amazing how the specialties have expanded. And as far as the services that you provide, I know for us, you provide lots of different services depending upon who the client is. Um, But I know you do network management and you also help with hardware and software, kind of developing the solutions. Can you explain a little bit about what you, when you're brought in to a client, um, kind of the role that you guys play? Yeah, we like to consider ourselves a turnkey solution that, you know, from the start to the finish. So if you're just exploring telehealth, we can come in and, and do presentations to the board to the decision makers, the administrators, uh, just to help people understand what telehealth really is. Because a lot of people think it's Skype, but then when you see a true high-quality clinical telehealth connection, uh, most people are very surprised and understand how diagnosis and treatment can occur uh, virtually. Now, we are different um, than some of the other telehealth programs that are on the market because we consider what we do clinical grade. So we do want providers to be able to fully examine a patient, whether that means looking in the ear, looking at the throat, listening to chest or, or heart sounds. Um, so it is truly clinical grade telehealth that, that we are pushing out. We are turnkey in the sense that we do those needs assessments, but then once you're ready to step forward, uh, as a nonprofit, we have worked with equipment sellers to try to get the best prices that we can get and then pass those savings on to those partners that work with us. So we are resellers of equipment. Uh, we are agnostic. So we just want to make sure that equipment that is purchased is interoperable with other equipment. Uh, we have a team of telehealth liaisons that live and work across the state so that once you're a partner, you're assigned a liaison and that's your go-to person for training for questions, for whatever. Um, uh, So we're very unique in that we have these telehealth liaisons. And then we have IT support. Um, If you purchase equipment through GPT, then we're certainly going to service that through our IT staff. And we have 24-7 coverage, and most people don't need 24-7, but those telestroke emergency rooms are going to need 24-7 IT support. and then we truly are a partner. Uh, we consider every partner's success our success. And then if we had a partner not doing well, then we see that as we're not doing well. So we we pour our heart and soul uh, into all of our partners, and uh, we are very mission-minded. And, and being a nonprofit, you know, it gives us a luxury to to be able to be have a calling. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we we're unique. We're different than the average telehealth uh, vendor on the market. Very good. So you're able to provide lots of different solutions, but you GPT does not provide the actual providers, correct? That's, That's the client. Right. That's the client provides point. the client provides the providers and you guys do the network and the software and the hardware to make it real. Yes. 
So if you are a provider and you want to be you want to set up a telehealth program, right. certainly in Georgia, there's no better way or no, no better place to go than the GPT because we've already got this network of, of patient sites, uh, whether it's a school, a nursing home, uh, a rural hospital. Um, so we've had physicians who have moved to Georgia who wanted to set up a telehealth practice, and it, it just makes it very easy for them to do that. Um, because there's a ready-made network for them. Right, CW, I think of it as like uh, when we dial into a network to connect with a client on our side, it's like a giant address book. So it's like a giant private network, and if you could really, we connect with Children's Hospital or uh, ER at a hospital or whoever's on the network. So it is very unique that we have this system in Georgia that other states kind of wish they had. Yeah, I, I find it intriguing. You were mentioning also about how physicians have chosen to be here to be able to practice within the infrastructure that you've created. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How did they, you know, what, it would seem that they don't have to be here to be able to participate outside of licensure. Yeah. Yeah. So can you talk more about how that, how that works? And and it would seem like that would be a great thing to try to leverage and, and, and accelerate. Yes. Yes. And it is true. You don't have to be in Georgia to treat Georgia patients. But what you would have to have is a Georgia medical license. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're sitting in Ohio, you could see patients in Georgia, but you've got to have got to be Georgia licensed license where the patient in is in order to do that. Okay. So even a doctor in Ohio uh, would be able to join our network and provide services. Um, a good example, a real example, is is we have an infectious disease uh, a physician down in Florida uh, who works with a number of our hospitals providing infectious disease services on a regular basis, uh, inpatient, uh, and some outpatient to, to patients in Georgia. Hmm. Yeah. So just time and space kind of falls away if you got the right licensure, yeah. which brings me a good segue, Rena. The next topic I'd like to talk to is kind of telemedicine adoption and some barriers or challenges. And you mentioned one, and that is licensure. So the mm-hmm. general rule is you have to be licensed where the patient is, not where the doctor is, correct? That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, so that would explain why a number of doctors have multiple licenses who are providing telehealth services so that they can reach into multiple states. Do you see any upcoming, I've, I've heard about the compact where some of the like 13 or 14 states are kind of getting together not to replace, but kind of maybe expedite telehealth licensure. Yes. Yes. Uh, and there are regional compacts that, that, some are in effect. Um, we're not part of one here in Georgia just yet, but maybe maybe we're heading in that direction. Um, it would simplify things. Mm-hmm. There's a national effort to have a national license. Mm-hmm. Um, that may take a while to, to get there. Rena, but, I think that's going to take a while. Yes. <laughs> if the states <laughs> yeah, will give up control, I don't yes, know about that. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I don't yeah, see those boards interest, saying, sure, yeah. sure, let's turn that over. Okay, Rena. So what are some other challenges for people to start in telehealth or that they have to overcome to kind of get going besides licensure? Okay. All right. Well, typically at the top of the list, no matter if you're talking to someone in California or, or Georgia or, or New York, is reimbursement. Okay. Um, now, fortunately, Georgia is is a very ripe 
landscape for telehealth. Because when we started back in 2004, you know, we had the insurance commissioner um, who was able to work with legislators and talk to them and, and educate them about the value of telehealth. So, so our policymakers in Atlanta were very supportive of telehealth. So they, they early on passed legislation that would uh, mandate that private payers have to pay for telehealth, which is good um, because the states that surround us, um, none of them have this type of legislation. So private payers uh, can opt in or opt out. And and so not all of them pay. Um, there's another interest that we would want the the payer to pay the same as if that patient had walked into the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, equal. That's called parity, and we would you know we'd love to have that um, because in our mind telehealth is no different it's than an in person visit in terms of quality. Yeah. Well, and, and in terms know, of we, liability and virtual yeah. exams with the right. tools we have these Absolutely. days, we're doing virtual exams. We can feed yeah. in real Bluetooth vital the signs and everything and else. Yeah. Are all the same. There you go. And see if a payer were paying less, then that's what, what they're saying is, oh, we're 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 accepting substandard, less quality. So right. I'm gonna pay you less. And we don't want that. We want a telehealth visit to be the same as if the patient were in the office. We don't want a lesser exam, less quality and all that. Um, but other things about reimbursement. So anyway, back to Georgia, since we're so ripe, that would explain why a physician, uh, an infectious disease physician, would be willing to see patients in Georgia because he can get paid, mm-hmm. whereas maybe he can't get paid mm-hmm. um, in his state. Other caveats with reimbursement is Medicaid. Now, in Georgia, Medicaid is very pro-telehealth, and we love, you know, uh, their stance on it, and they they support it 100%, and they are willing to pay for patients to use telehealth. And they see it as a means for their beneficiaries to access services that they would not normally access, uh, because you can imagine all across Georgia in our rural settings, we don't have all those specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how are we going to get those Medicaid patients to, to see these specialists? And a lot of times they can't drive to Atlanta or, or to the large city to make a Albany or wherever. So, so Medicare is very supportive and proactive about telehealth. Medicare, which is the federal program, it will pay a, a doctor if he sees a patient by telehealth, but the patient has to be in a rural setting. So there's some rules mm. that go along with Medicare that make it somewhat challenging. Um, for example, uh, having worked in Florida, you know, Florida, their po- their Medicare populations don't. Most of them don't live in the rural part of Florida. They congregate in the large cities. Yeah. So, see, all of those patients would not be able to access uh, telehealth, and and that's unfortunate because even in large cities, um, even though the care is there, sometimes it's hard to get to that care. Um, for example, uh, skilled nursing facilities. It would be so nice. If telehealth could be could transport physicians into that facility, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if that facility's in a city or or in a town, um, those patients should be able to access telehealth and not have to go yeah. through all that transport. So, so, so there's a barrier even with with Medicare uh, when it comes to reimbursement. So, even though reimbursement is better than it was, 
it's going to improve. And yeah. it is improving as, as we speak. Yeah. Okay? I think, too, one of the case studies kind of going on that I see a lot in the news is um, because if you back up the train, especially with chronic diseases, and you can monitor mm-hmm. patients at home mm-hmm. or in a facility where they are, and then you avoid the hospitalizations and you avoid the ambulance transfers and all of yes. those things, then they're, they're kind there of starting go. to take another look. But I think people originally thought of telemedicine as an access point for subspecialty or specialty care in a rural Uh setting. Mm -hmm. Now it is reaching back into the home, back into where Uh the patient sits. And I think some payers are seeing the benefit of that, maybe slowly, but it's turning a little bit. Yeah, Yeah. it sounds like, I mean, I can't see there being any real data that it doesn't improve outcomes, doesn't save money. I mean, you you know how much focus is placed on patient engagement around population health management. Uh Uh chronic illnesses like diabetes, for example, or hypertension, the more you are engaged with those clinicians. Well, it's early prevention instead of a train wreck in the ER. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's that's very logical. Well, you know, Rena, we are three telehealth champions. There you go. That's right. Well, I know (laughs) you mentioned, you know, skilled nursing facilities, and I, I know we are talking about backing it up into the home, but I'd like you to spend a little bit of time talking about Lots of different locations that you all are in that maybe people don't think about that you okay. you've kind of all gotten right. some leadership and traction in. All right. Well, we are, of course, we're in rural hospitals and urban hospitals mm-hmm. and rural clinics of all kinds and urban clinics of all kinds. But then, outside of those typical patient settings, we are in schools in those those school based clinics. So we've got nurses who are presenting patients um, from the school. Uh, We have those skilled nursing facilities. We probably in Georgia have over 50. um, And I should back up to the schools. In Georgia, we have over 90 schools that provide um, services. And in Tennessee, we have over 30 schools up there that are providing. Is this um, is this one of your fastest? I know we have we talk all the time about there are counties in Georgia that have no primary care, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And probably I know in Berrien County, you guys were pioneers and kind of getting Mm -hmm. original working in collaboration with the school superintendent there. Is this one of your faster growing programs, the school based? It is. I would Uh, guess it it is the fastest growing uh, segment of of our business. And um, unfortunately, you know, we see that continuing to go to, to grow. And I say 90 schools, but that's not 90 counties. So in Georgia, we have 159 counties. So the potential for growth mm-hmm. in Georgia mm-hmm. is tremendous. You know, um, even though we have, you know, the 600 partners and the majority of them are in Georgia, uh, you'd think we had saturated the state. Not. Um, there's so much room to grow. We. Um, we are in, we have a footprint in 106 of the 159 counties in Georgia. That's a lot. It sounds good. It sounds good. But, see, we might just be in one school in right. one county, or we, we might just be in the skilled nursing facility. So, in, Rena, in, when in you're one. in a school, do you have just the kids as patients or are parents? How does that work? Okay. Are parents allowed to see some primary care since there's no now, we've resources? had. Yeah, it's a it's a school board by school board okay. decision. Hmm. Okay, so we have had um, one school that even 
open themselves up to the public, you know, like during the summer or whatever. So that, that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have several schools who will allow the teachers to, to use it, which to me, if I were on nice. a school board, mm-hmm. I would certainly approve it because what happens, you keep that Your teacher. productivity is um, up. Yes. You yeah. don't have to hire someone for the whole day to take that class just for that hour or so when she has to go for her visit. Um, and then some schools are still just limiting it, limiting it to the students. Um, but hopefully, and, and we do our best to convince them, like, why not leverage yeah, this seriously. technology mm-hmm. to its max and, and let's use it for everybody in the school. Yeah, well, that's an exciting program. And I know you guys are national leaders in that. You're starting to have conferences just for that, I've seen. We do. We do. We have an annual school uh, conference. And we do have folks from out of state who come. And typically, we've been holding that, in fact, every year. The last two years, we've held it in Tifton. Um, And we've been able to draw some good crowds down to Tifton. Just out of curiosity, is it mostly primary care? Or are there, like, therapies delivered to these kids? Like, is there, like, speech therapy or anything like that? Well, well, let's go back to that barrier of reimbursement. Um, Speech therapy and a lot of the therapies are not paid for okay um yet but what a perfect solution Mm -hmm. um you know there's no there's no practical reason why they should not pay but we're we're you know we're moving in that direction but typically you know with kids at school it's those acute uh, problems coming to school with the earache the sore Mm -hmm. throat the the congestion so a lot of it is acute care and uh, if the community has primary care and pediatric care those are the doctors um who we're connecting with. So it's the children's own doctors. Mm -hmm. If a community does not, then we've been fortunate enough to have area physicians willing, um, you know, maybe within driving distance who are, who are connecting. But even if we didn't have that, we still have urgent care doctors um, located across the state who would be willing to see these children. Uh, But specialty care is also provided. Now those those are going to be by appointment. Of course, the acute care is the kid comes in and the nurse calls the mm-hmm. whoever her doctor is and says, Johnny's here. Could you see him today? And they work him in just like the child had come into their office. But the specialty care is, is going to be a scheduled appointment. It has been amazing, especially in terms of behavioral health and autism treatment, oh, what has occurred that. over the last few years. Children who would never have been diagnosed, much less treated. Uh, for their disorder. And it is amazing the transformation that occurs in the child's life, in the family's dynamics, and at the school. Um, I mean, yeah. we, we've got so many success stories that, that just I can imagine that. Well, the nice thing yeah. about behavioral health is it's pretty much an AV connection, and yeah. it's not a, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of peripheral technology tools. So the cost to get into that kind of a program is pretty low-hanging fruit, kind of cost-effective. Yep. Yep, so yep, it's you're right. not a lot of technology upfront costs for the, the client, so that's good. Yeah. All right, very good. So that's really interesting, your leadership in the school-based telehealth world. That makes me wonder about the efforts by the Dental Association and Hygienist Association in the state to fill the dental deserts. Is there any sort of dental care or evaluation screening, that sort of thing that is done using this technology yet or no? There is. There is. We're fortunate within public health. Um, in fact, I'm down here in Waycross, Georgia, and, and it is this health district that a number of years ago was able to implement a teledentistry 
program. And they have done wonderful. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give a plug. We do have Public Health is going to speak at our conference this week. Um, and and so I'm sure you'll want to come and, and hear, hear their great story. And see, so not only are we as a statewide network leading the country, but I do believe that Georgia Public Health uh, is leading the public health department. I think department that's true. I know we have a site in Albany, mm-hmm. and we actually share space yeah. with a dentist that works out of the yeah. public health department and dentist some days of the week, mm-hmm. and then we're there other days of the mm-hmm. week in like a yes. telemedicine facility. So multi-specialty yeah. um, tools and platforms and things like that, you know, certainly. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a lot of what Rena's saying. It's uh, people kind of pigeonholed telehealth in their mind a certain way. And as the technology is improved and the applications have been improved, people are somewhat surprised a little bit. Going back to the locations besides the school arena, I know you're also doing work with ambulances, with prisons. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little All bit right. about that? I know we have a couple of sites doing some things like that with you. Yes, yes. Now, now we're on the cutting edge and uh, at the beginning of, of trying to implement telehealth within ambulances. Um, I know that Dr. Jean Sumner, who's the Dean of Medicine at Mercer University, um, she's doing some work now and, and she's she's trying to push this boulder up the hill with ambulance. And uh, and so, you know, stay tuned and let, let's keep an eye on, on, on what Mercer's doing. Um, and we're partnering with all of her projects to, to help support that. Um, a good thing that just happened this year in Georgia when it comes to ambulances and telehealth they petitioned, Medicaid petitioned CMS to see if we could make ambulances a qualified telehealth presenting site, meaning, or originating site, meaning they would pay a fee to the ambulance if they presented a patient from the ambulance to a provider. And this passed this year. Uh, and we may be the only state that does that. Uh, don't quote me on that, but mm-hmm. we're one of few states who are willing to do that. So we are just now in the pilot phases of trying to make mm-hmm. this happen. You know, um, uh, typically what incentivizes an, an ambulance, how they get paid is if they transport a patient to the ED and they don't get paid mm-hmm. if they don't transport that patient. So so even though Medicaid's not paying a whole lot, they're paying something to, to, to try to incentivize this so that if there's a patient that it's questionable, do they need to go, they don't need to go, um, you're going to need a physician to be able to evaluate that patient to make a determination because EMS can't do that. Um, and, 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 and so they connect with the physician who can look at the patient and say, oh, yeah, bring them in or, or no, here's prescribed treatment, tell the patient what they need to do. So it, it, it's a cool concept and it is a needed concept. And so we hope that we will lead the way um, Very and, good. and well, be able to come up with some data. That'll yeah. be interesting. Well, cost savings, why too? I know we both work in rural Georgia a lot, and I know CW, if they transport them, they're on the way to the wrong facility mm. for the, that does, you know, like if they're closest to hospital A, but that hospital doesn't have the services there, yeah. they're yes. going to have to move them again anyway. So Certainly in the field, if they could get them to the right place and know where they're going for the problem and have it diagnosed there, that will end up in cost savings, I think, in the long term. Yeah. yeah. There, there's many applications using uh, EMS, and yeah. uh, we're excited. And, and we're working with a number of EMS uh, companies now in counties uh, now. 
All right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what the end, some of the end results are a year from now, maybe. Yes. You have a lot more to tell. Yes. Well, tell us yes. a little bit, too, about it's one thing to make an impact in a state, and you guys certainly have been national leaders for our state, but I know you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, you're kind of feeling your Wheaties a little bit with outreach globally. Can you speak a little mm-hmm. bit about how, what you're doing, kind of where? Give us some examples of what you're doing. Sure. Sure. Our first global opportunity came uh, a few years ago, about three years ago, I guess it was. Um, A physician in Louisiana approached us saying that he had a relationship with an orphanage in Guatemala. And this orphanage had 450 to 500 children at any given time. And, um, And he had physicians at LSU who were willing to see these children, but he didn't have means to connect them. Um, so after he talked to us, and, and you know, we're a nonprofit, we are mission-minded, but we don't have a lot of money, but we happened to have an extra telemedicine cart that we donated to the orphanage, sent a team over, set it up. Uh, while they were there, they did their first uh, clinical connection with a pediatric cardiologist who diagnosed a child and made arrangements that day to, to have that child transported for surgery uh, to Louisiana. So it was a success immediately coming out of the mm. gate. And so so now these children uh, are being seen. Uh, they get new children almost every week, and each child has to have a physical before they can be integrated uh, into the other children. And and so it is amazing uh, the work that's been uh, happening with the orphanage in Guatemala. Um, we were also uh, contacted by an American nurse uh, who was in Afghanistan at an orphanage. And she was telling us, you know, she needed some assistance and someone had referred her to us, uh, but she needed some consultations for some very sick children. So we were able to set her up um, to do telehealth. And now we even help her find physicians who are willing to do these consultations on, on the children. Um, another group out of Atlanta approached us about a work in Honduras, and typically all of these are, are mission organizations mm-hmm. um, who have reached out to us, which certainly speaks to our heart. And uh, so now there's a, a good work going on in Honduras where uh, physicians uh, in Atlanta are connecting and providing services uh, to folks there. Uh, then there was another hospital in Atlanta who wanted to provide uh, neonatal care to Macedonia, to a hospital over there. So we were able to step in and help make that happen. Um, So right now we have those four works going on. Uh, We do get requests from time to time. There was a doctor who would go to China uh, off and on, and she wanted to do follow-up with those those patients. So we enabled her to be able to do that. We're open, but this also shows you how robust our network is. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we can connect on a hill in Guatemala, uh, we should be able to connect, uh, you know, from one county to another across mm-hmm. Georgia. It is interesting. I know we got a call this past month to go to the Amazon. Like <laughs> oh, the Amazon, my. Yeah, a guy putting up cell towers. There was a company setting up cell towers and thought they could use the cellular to uh-huh. bring telemedicine, you know, up the Amazon River to both oh, villages and really well-established communities that were kind of cut off that mm-hmm. way. So we've had the same experience of Rena's. just somebody will hear, they'll call, they're networking. But 
I think telehealth is very much a global. When you take away Mm -hmm. the walls and you have the technology to go across the ocean, then people are starting to collaborate in interesting ways. Yeah, I think that is exciting. Well, Rena, let's talk a little bit about the technology. I know when you and I first met many, many years ago, there were uh, a lot was cart based and Boy, the technology has just become a lot more abundant and a lot cheaper. Can you talk a little bit about what's kind of going on in the tech part of the telemedicine market? Sure, sure. Um, Certainly the cost of a cart has greatly decreased. I think when I first started, it was maybe $40,000 to $45,000 a cart. Um, And then now you can get those carts for maybe $20,000. But honestly, you don't even need carts. Some people still like those fancy carts, but a laptop that, you know, and some peripherals with a camera, a high-def camera, and, and in fact, a lot of computers have cameras in them now anyway, and then a, a good speaker, and you're good to go. Many of our schools that don't have, you know, big budgets, I mean, their budgets are for books and buses, not for health care, so, so we can help them set up a laptop. Um, sometimes we have folks who have their own laptops and we, they just need some software and some peripherals. So it is much less expensive, that initial investment um, of, of equipment and hardware and software. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's, it's doable. Uh, we, you know, people get creative. We have one hospital in uh, Alabama that wanted to provide to about five rural hospitals so they could help them with with stroke. So they just went to their foundation. They had a hospital foundation who was willing to purchase the equipment. I, I tell folks, well, let's have a bake sale or, or, or go to the church and start raising money, you know, for this good cause. And so, so you don't have to raise as much money, but there's a lot of ways to get it. Um, and it's a lot less expensive. And, and so that's if anyone's point. entertaining the thought, call us and we'll talk to you. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, too, um, a lot of people are anteing in to get the resources in their community mm-hmm. because they're starting mm-hmm. to realize that the economics of keeping their patients local really impact mm-hmm. much more than just the hospital census. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Indeed. we're working with some rural hospitals and um, like you said, the foundation, we even had one that was willing to pay a stipend because in their state... They were not covered by telemedicine in their state, and they were high Medicaid. So, But even though the Medicaid wasn't there, the hospital was willing to put in extra money themselves to keep the patients Mm -hmm. local. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, certainly the tools are there. Uh, Another big trend I see, Arena, that you alluded to is a lot of things that used to require encryption or data transmission through these telemedicine carts have now transferred to apps and even mobile apps and software applications on a laptop. And so you can just mm-hmm. bypass a lot of the used to be formerly required technology. Mm-hmm. So it's come down and yes. become very flexible. I know we're now looking at the smartphone, like how can we get our patients on the smartphone yeah. and what mm-hmm. kind of apps that we use? Because that's what people have. Um, I know yeah. I met a doctor in Africa and I was saying, well, how do you do telemedicine where you live? And she goes, well, okay, it, we're not going to have T1 lines and broadband to the village, but somebody will have a cell phone. And so uh-huh. they're really developing a lot of apps for healthcare um, and doing things a different way somewhere else. So people are getting yes. creative, I would agree. It, it's true. And I'm glad you brought up about, you know, secure. You still have to transmit through a secure mm. connection. Right. Because we're still talking about patient data, patient information. And uh, and so 
everything has to be HIPAA compliant and safe and secure. Right. So, um, Rena, I would like to kind of talk, uh, kind of extend the technology. It's great we have all these apps, but do we have the workforce? You know, you heard me mention right at the beginning that there was a big gap between what we're able to do and the people that actually know how to use the tools that we use in telemedicine. So can you speak a little bit? I know you've been associated uh, still today with the National School for Applied Telehealth. And what about the workforce and how are we getting doctors comfortable and, you know, kind of how are we getting the people part of making this happen? Yes. Well, a number of years ago, you'd mentioned uh, the Southeast Telehealth Resource Center. Yes. Now, this is a federally funded program that it's a grant that was granted to Georgia Partnership for Telehealth the first time in 2010. Okay. Well, one of the deliverables for this federal grant, we recognize that there is a need for workforce training. So we put it in the grant that we were going to develop an online school that specifically addressed telehealth. And it's like basic 101 uh, telehealth. And it included everything you needed to know, the terminology, video etiquette, all kinds of stuff in there uh, to, to help people have a confidence um, to be able to, to deliver telehealth services. So we have the, this course. We're the on, only online telehealth training course in the country. We have trained over 1,400 students, and that's mostly national, but some international students. It takes probably six six hours to, to complete the course, and you have 30 days to do it. Um, but we have worked with universities uh, who have opted to use our courses as their curriculum for their telehealth training, and then they'll add a hands-on lab at that university. But it's just a good introduction and help people to, to, like I said, have some confidence to deliver telehealth. We have a group of physicians out of Texas who have reached out, and we are now uh, have developed a clinician uh, training course that will probably uh, be only hour and a half or so uh, two hours for them to be able to do this online course. Um, so, so we've had much success when it comes to online training. And th- is the training courses are they? Is there just one, or is there like a course for presenters and a course for marketer? Yes. Or what? Yes, what are there. the options? I guess there. Yeah, there, there's several. We have the uh, the uh, telemedicine presenter course. And that's the actual person who would be with the patient, presenting the patient the to clinical, the, the clinical person. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then we have the uh, telehealth coordinator. So that would be the one who is in the office, in the hospital, in the school, who is implementing the program, all the administrative things that go along with like reimbursement and, mm-hmm. and credentialing and things like that. And then we developed a, a less clinical course called the telehealth liaison. So that would be for anyone who's not clinical, uh, but their company is now getting in, into telehealth, whether you're an, an insurance, you're an equipment salesman, um, you're a state agency and you've got to learn the basics of telehealth. So it's a more secular uh, position. Okay, very good. Well, it sounds like that's mm-hmm. expanding. And as telehealth expands, so will that would be my guess. <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. Well, let's talk a little uh-huh. bit before we have just a little bit of time left. And I know we talked about trends kind of coming up. We mentioned a few. I'd like to kind mm-hmm. of just 
bring on some ideas and get your take on kind of where you think telehealth telehealth is kind of headed. Let's start with technology advances. So what are you, is there something out there you're excited about that's coming to telemedicine that's on the horizon? Yes, we do believe that telehealth will be occurring from the home. Now, it, it's, it's a little bit now occurring where you actually can connect with a physician from your home. What is lacking, though, is the ability to have an examination. You know, so, so if you connect right now with a doc, he can look at you, but that's about it, and talk to you and all that. Um, but there are some devices now um, that are going to market. They're consumer grade where you would be able to show your child's ear, the throat. And, and I think they're pretty good. Even even the, the chest sounds, you know, the heart sounds and the lung sounds. Um, so I think, you know, that is going to be the future that we are going to be able to connect and enable a doc to examine us from our house and be able to do that more clinical kind of of treatment that that we like. I agree with you. You know, this year in our company, we took care, I think CW knows this, we took care of our first home bed bound Mm -hmm. patient by telemedicine. And then she was transported to be delivered at the last hour. But (laughs) anyways, that was kind of interesting. But you know what? We had Bluetooth wireless scales. Mm -hmm. We had blood pressure cuffs that were wireless. We Mm -hmm. did a home visit once to teach her a Doppler so we could hear her baby's heartbeat. And um, it was really kind of incredible. So I think that's a good point is we have peripherals that um, work with our smartphones or our devices at home, then we'll be able to Mm -hmm. do more data transmission back to the Mm -hmm. provider. Yes. And, you know, as a consumer, I'm I'm very excited about about the potential of it. Um, I mean, I'm a grandmother and 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 I would love it if my grandchildren would not have to be taken into the pediatrician's office. But sometimes if, you get sick there. Could, Notice how they have yeah. sick waiting rooms and healthy waiting rooms. <laughs> you think you must stay away yeah. from there. That'd be good. Yeah. Rena, let's talk. You brought up consumer demands. Let's talk about what is what is happening with con- we now have uh United Healthcare commercials on TV. We have all kinds of data out there showing we have uh I think for the last two years. Most of the carriers have included a telehealth visit after hours as part of their plan design. So what are Mm -hmm. you seeing with the consumer demand out there? Well, I'll just take off my my work hat and put on my consumer hat. And as a consumer, um, I want access to care because sometimes even I have limited access. I'll give you an example. I was uh, scheduled to speak at a conference, and I got there a couple of days early. Well, I came down with food poisoning, and I could not leave the hotel room, and I needed some medication to help me with my symptoms, and I could not access care. I mean, I could not get in my car. Um, right. I, I couldn't drive. I couldn't leave the room, and so fortunately, because I know what I know, I was able to make a connection directly to a provider and they were able to take care of me. I mean, they called in prescriptions to a CVS in that city. Well, they called them in my home CVS in Georgia, and then they were transferred to a local CVS where I was in that state. And the hotel wing got my prescriptions and, you know, a day of prescriptions took care of the symptoms and I was good to go. Um, so even all of us at some time or another may have access to care issues. And so I would like to be able to, 
to do this. You know, you're finding in retail settings. I was uh, just going to say, yeah, we don't have Walmart, yeah, CVS just putting in. So, I mean, these retail spaces would not be setting up telehealth um, clinics, you know, and and, and kiosk and all if there weren't a demand Mm -hmm. for those services. I mean, we want convenient care. We want affordable care. Because oftentimes what you'll find is when you do this, it is less than having to go into the physician's office, or it's very similar to the copay. You know, we're people who are very comfortable with technology, especially the younger generations. And I think the expectation is that we can get it through technology and we can get it in a more convenient way. Yeah, I agree with that. Last question, and then we're going to have you talk a little bit about your summit that's coming up this week. Is there anything in telemedicine that's kind of surprising you? Is there anything that you see that's kind of in the news or out there that's kind of surprising you, the the master of telemedicine? Mm. Well, in a negative way, mm-hmm. one thing that surprises me is how many physicians are resistant mm-hmm. to telehealth and leveraging technology to deliver care. We do experience a lot of pushback from providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe it's because they're already so busy they don't they don't feel they're able to to add uh, you know a, another line of service if, if you want to call it that. That has surprised me over the years. Now once physicians try it, they, it's like, they typically love it. Yeah, it's yeah. like learning a tool. Example. Yeah, it's like making yeah. them learn an EMR program. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pa- it's bad medicine for the first three months, and then you're like, "What was I thinking?" <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. We we had this rural primary care provider, uh, and and she hated telemedicine, and she would not listen to us. She pushed back, and and finally, I don't know how one of our staff convinced her, but she said, "Okay, just." I'll try it. And once she tried it, she became one of the biggest utilizers. Mm -hmm. I mean, she loved it that her patients could now access a psychiatrist in her office. I mean, the patients loved it because they couldn't, you know, or wouldn't drive the distance, but then nobody knew that they were coming to her office um, to see a psychiatrist, you know, because some people, you know, that they they don't want folks to know. Mm -hmm. But then she started accessing all these specialist that she had never accessed before other than just referring out to. Mm -hmm. And now she's interacting with these specialists with the patient and the outcomes for the patients just went through the roof. We had another provider who started using a dermatologist, okay? And um, she was in a uh, southwest Georgia rural community where there was a lot of farmers, lots of skin cancers and things like that. So she started connecting her patients with this dermatologist. And she was doing a lot of encounters. And then one day I kind of noticed that her monthly totals were, were decreasing. So I, the, la- the next time I visited her, I asked her about that. You're not seeing that dermatologist so much. And she said, well, you know, I've done it so much and I've learned so much from her. I now know what the treatment is for a lot of these disorders. Mm-hmm. Now, wasn't that cool? Because mm-hmm. then we added the education piece, mm-hmm. you know, the the savvy went up because you had this mm-hmm. this this rural doctor, primary care provider, now working with a specialist who helped her learn more yeah, about how to professional treat development. disorders. Well, you know, you bring up a yeah. good point. We say telemedicine is like the clinical application of using the tools, but telehealth is a much broader definition. Mm-hmm. I know uh, in our company as well, we do long-distance learning to train ultrasound techs 
at a, mm-hmm. at a, in a community. And we use platform, we use telemedicine. We had the Russians here for a training CW, <laughs> and they kept saying, we do telemedicine. I said, well, what do you do with the patients? They're like, we don't use it for patients. We use it to train all the doctors in our outlying clinic. So I'm like, well, wait till you get to the patients. But yeah, it, 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 you, it is a tool that you can use for education as well as the clinical part. So mm-hmm. just getting the, getting the help where it, it's needed, I guess, is the key point. Well, Rena, yeah. we are out of time. I so appreciate your expertise and you taking the time with us today, but I don't want to leave without you telling all the listeners about your summit that's coming up this week. Yes. Um, it starts bright and early on Thursday morning. Most people come and check in on Wednesday. We will be at the gorgeous, beautiful, historic Jekyll Island Resort Club. Um, we met there last year. Usually we moved the conference around, but it was such a hit last year with everybody that they were saying, you've got to come back here. So so we're going back to, to Jekyll Island. Um, but it's not too late. We still got chairs for anyone who wants to sign up. And, um, and so you can go on our website, gatelehealth.org. So that's GA, Georgia, telehealth.org, and and you can register. But it will be a day and a half of packed, interesting telehealth everything. Um, And and we're just excited. Uh, And you'll be there, right, Tanya? I'll be there. I'll be there. I'm speaking there. Yeah, we'll be there. And I know that I've I've come almost every year, but I'm all constantly surprised by it's not really just Georgia. I mean, it is people from all over, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. I've met so many people that are trying to get telemedicine in their state or their area, um, like you've been able to make inroads here in Georgia. So a lot of people, um, it's not just for Georgia. So if you want to learn about telehealth in many, many, many different settings and specialties, then uh, come on out to the summit um, this weekend and join us. So, Rena, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Again, gatelehealth.org is how you can reach Rena and her organization. And um, CW, have any closing thoughts? I would say make sure you go by womenstelehealth.com. Check out the high-risk maternal fetal specialty services that they're able to provide to practices, whether they are in the city or out in the rural areas as well. They've got clients in both, and they're providing some great care there. If you've not done so already, in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll find the Apple logo. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the Top Docs radio show podcast lives. And subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. And please turn around and share it. With your social media networks, you very well may just be introducing somebody to some information that really makes a difference for them. And all you did was click share. So everybody that does that for us, thank you so much. And Rena, it was a treat to get to hear all about telehealth. It was a, a, She's a, a great big discussion. success story. Yep. She's a big driver. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank well, you, Rena. I'll see you later out in a week. There, we'll see you in a week. 